LinkedIn presents. Bicycle. I'm Rufus Griscom. And this is the next big idea. Bicycle. I want to ride my That man yearning, pleading, begging to ride his bicycle is, of course, Queen's lead singer, Freddie Mercury. And Freddie, I could not sympathize more. Here's something I read recently. Bike riding is the best way I know to reach an altered consciousness. Not an ennobled or enlightened state exactly, but definitely an enlivened one. A bike ride is better than yoga or wine or weed. It runs neck and neck with sex and coffee. It's also, in my experience, an antidote for writer's block. If you're stuck, if you need to ungum the synapses and lift dust off the cerebral lobes, take a trip on two wheels and the words will begin tumbling out. Those words tumbled out of the ungummed synapses of a guy named Jody Rosen. He's a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and a bike nut who's just published a rousing and sometimes arousing book called Two Wheels Good. His subtitle, I love this, is The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. The mystery is why it took so long for the bike to come into being. We've had the engineering know-how since at least the Middle Ages, and yet the first bike didn't come into existence until the 19th century, a decade and a half after the invention of the steam locomotive. When the bicycle did arrive, though, it arrived with a bang. That's the history part of Jody's book. He takes readers on a rollicking ride through the two-wheeled revolution, revealing the surprising ways bicycles have shaped the world in which we live. It's easy to mistake the bike as a toy for a child or a man in the throes of a midlife crisis. But throughout history, the bicycle has been a social leveler, a weapon of war, a sex object, and a vital cog in the global economy. I was shocked to learn from Jody that every day millions of bicycles move billions of pounds of goods and materials. There are more working cargo bikes in China than there are cargo trucks everywhere else in the world. The world runs on bicycles, and we need them now more than ever. We know that cars are the single greatest contributor to climate change. What if the way to reverse that trend isn't the Tesla, but the Schwinn? By the end of the decade, 60% of the world's population will be living in cities, cities that are often loud, crowded, and overrun with cars. What if the bicycle the paragon of 19th century ingenuity could be the answer to the problems of modern urban transport. Last summer, I visited Amsterdam and I was blown away by what a bicycle utopia it is. Biking is the most common way to get around downtown and it's beautiful. I couldn't help but think, could this happen to New York City? And if it can happen in New York, could it happen across the country? It may seem impossible, but consider this. 60 years ago, city planners in Copenhagen wanted to turn their 10th century Danish city into a 20th century American one. They put forth plans to pave over lakes and bisect the city with a 12-lane superhighway. Then came the 1973 oil crisis. Fuel prices skyrocketed, and Danes began to rethink their fascination with American autotopia. They invested instead in the bicycle. They built hundreds of miles of bike lanes and turned Copenhagen into the most bikeable city in the world, where two-thirds of residents cycle to work or school. Maybe the pandemic could be that moment for us to make it happen. It inspired millions of Americans to get on a bike for the first time in years. Researchers now estimate that cycling's pandemic boom will result in hundreds of miles of protected bike lanes in cities from sea to shining sea. As Jody and I discuss in the conversation that follows, bikes can make our cities cleaner, greener, safer, and more equitable. Join us for the ride. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Jody Rosen, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you, Rufus. So happy to be here. Jody, what was your favorite bicycle 
as a child. Do do you remember your your first bike that you loved? Uh, yeah, I had a lot of bikes as a kid, and I, and the truth is, I don't remember all of them very well. But the one that kind of sticks with me, my the the one that I I'll, I'll say here is my favorite, is this bike that I kind of discovered at a country house in Connecticut that I used to go to. It was the house of my father's second wife's parents, that is my step-grandparents at the time. And in the depths of their garage, I found this old child's bike of 1960s vintage, which was a girl's bike with a, a step-through frame. And it had these kind of streamers that on the handlebars. I chopped those off. I had, I had to get rid of the streamers because those struck me as undignified. But otherwise, this was just such a cool old bike. It was it was painted red. And I remember had, having the, the impression that, that I was riding on something that was that was very old and hadn't been ridden by anyone in, in some time, which made it especially cool. And that's that's a bike I would use when I would go up to Connecticut on some weekends and kind of tool around the, the roads that wound through the woods up there. And that's that's one that that is very fondly recalled even to this day. Mine was a a Schwinn Stingray with a banana seat. Mm. Also red, actually, right? A red red was a good color for for a bike. But I coveted the rally chopper. Mm. five-speed shifter in the top tube and other kids had it my parents said it was too expensive and i just dreamed about that bike <laughs> you know it's funny that you you wanted the chopper because the schwinn like a schwinn banana seat bike is now as you know that is it's such a classic that's the height of hipster fashion you know what i mean you see you see grown adults riding around on those things Right. It is a classic. They brought it back. And I actually, in, in my preparations for this conversation, I, I all these memories came flooding back. And I actually, last night, I I ended up, couldn't get to sleep, but I, and I was Googling on eBay and pulled up. I can get a Rally Chopper, the original with the shifter, but now they're like $1,200 for an old Oh, man. Bike. But, yeah. But they're, I mean, they're collector's items. But the, the smell of a bicycle shop, Jody, which of course is like, the smell of new rubber tires, mm-hmm. which is, it's a chemical smell really, but but for me, it is just such a beautiful smell and it brings back all the kind of childhood dreams and aspirations, you know, for these beautiful bicycles. I associate that smell with repairs that I need done on my bike that I'm incapable of doing myself. And I'm talking about the most remedial sort of repairs, like literally like getting getting a new inner tube in the in the thing. I've just never I'm so the opposite of a gearhead. So I tend to duck into those shops when I need the most basic sort of work done. Weirdly, I've never exactly been a fetishist about bikes. Like I've never really coveted this make or models so very much. I mean, there's some bikes, you know, when I see people who have like beautiful bespoke like, you know, I, I'm, I'm real into like, you know, classic cruisers or roadsters, like Dutch style mm-hmm. bikes. And when you see sure. people who have like yeah. beautifully, beautifully made bikes by some, some master craftsman, <laughs> yeah, I can tell that that, wow, that's a really nice bike. I'd like to ride that thing, but I've never been like, I, I think it's, it's in part because I run through bikes so quickly, both by beating them up and because they're so, I don't know if this is me or it's just being in New York, but you know, I don't know. They're, they're so often stolen. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I've had right. to, I've had to cultivate an attitude of you know easy come easy go when it comes to bicycles. I always have one or more than one, but I, I try not to get too 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 attached to any individual bike for that reason. I don't yeah, know how your yeah. luck what your luck has been like with stolen bikes. I've, well, I've, it's turned me to city bike. I, I've lost a lot of bikes mm. off the streets of New York over the years. But yeah, but I know from reading your book that you are you may not be a bike fetishist in terms of like obsessing on an individual bike. But you do seem to have a deep fondness for the bicycle itself, right? The the form of the bicycle, which I think I've realized in the course of reading your book that there's no type of object I find more beautiful than the bicycle. Like it, it's it's kind of perfect, isn't it? 100%. The best way I can describe it is I don't feel good when I'm not on one most of the time, at least when I'm having to get anywhere, you know, make any kind of commute, run any kind of errand. I don't feel quite myself when I'm not on two wheels and I'm having to move about town. It feels a little bit like you're, you know, I'm trying to like make my way through quicksand <laughs> as I go about my day. And I think that's because that that speaks to to the point you make about the the, the kind of 
perfection is one way of putting it, just beauty of, of the bicycle as a piece of design and engineering. You know, the, the bicycle is, is you know, it was, a, it was this kind of two centuries long series of trials and errors that brought us the perfection of the modern bicycle. And really what, what the bicycle is about is the bicycle frame and the human frame become one and the same. So it's, 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 a, it's a machine that's sort of ideally tailored to the human form. And I like to think of it as less a vehicle than a prosthesis. It's something that, you know, when you're on a good bike ride, you really feel yourself kind of merged with the bicycle and you become a component. You know, that's, that's the big curiosity of the bicycle is that, is that a bicycle rider is both the passenger on the bike and the mm-hmm. engine of the machine. When you think about what historians of technology and design talk about as kind of perfect inventions, inventions that mm, can't be improved yeah. upon. They often talk about things like the, dr- the drinking bowl or, you know, a pin, you know, these things of that whose origins are very ancient. But the bicycle mm-hmm. is, you know, this thing which is a product of modernity, yet it often feels like it's been around forever because it is so, it's such a perfectly designed thing. It certainly is. No, no, and you say, I'm quoting you here, the pangs of gratitude and affection I feel for my bike and for bikes in general are deeper than those I harbor for any other inanimate thing. And if I'm being honest, for all but a few animate ones. <laughs> so I, I have to ask you a kind of delicate question, Jody. Have you had any erotic experiences with bicycles? I have not had erotic experiences with bicycles. Oh, well, let's see here. <laughs> Just, I'm just, I'm just riffling the pages of my past. No, I can't say I've had erotic experiences. But I mean, I guess it depends how you define erotic, right? Okay, I, I, I <laughs> let, let's say I like to think I'm very passionate about bikes. I think I love them deeply in the way that one loves, let's say, a child or you know, a pet like a dog. You know what I mean? Was as opposed to the way like let's say I love my wife. But but there is, as you may know, if you've read my book, there is a long, certainly a long history of discourse around bicycles and sex. And there's, there's, certainly, um, there's certainly a lot of people who've had a variety of erotic experiences involving bikes and have <laughs> documented them in various ways, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, no, this, this chapter was quite extraordinary. Here I have another quote from you. You, you. you write, to ride a bike is to enter into an intimate relationship. You swing your thighs across the bicycle, you mount it, you pump the pedals, your body merges with the body of the bike. Together, you build up a steady rhythm. I won't go further. This is a family show. But no, but it, it is, you know, people have irrationally powerful connections with their bicycles quite clearly. You know, I, I think uh, I've, I've been thinking in the last couple of weeks reading your book about why I get so much joy from bicycles. I think I think for me, there are a few reasons. One is the, just the efficiency of it, right? It's what, what coders would call an elegant solution to the problem of how to move humans around, right? And, 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 there's, and the simplicity of it is just sort of gorgeous. Then there's the visceral joy, right? It's, it's, it's silent, you know, the motion, the breeze, the interaction with the neighborhood. You're moving just fast enough to have a lot of visual novelty, but not so fast as to not be able to connect with, with other humans, you know? The light uptick and heart rate, blood flow to the brain, you know, it, it just, I'm getting goosebumps right, right now. It just, it just, <laughs> bicycles just make me really happy. I mean, you said it. For me, it's the efficiency, as you say. Okay, so on a bicycle, a human me moves four times faster than he or she than they do mm-hmm. on foot, while expending five times less energy. So hard to find that. a machine. Hard to find a machine that's more efficient, right? Yep. And. It just feels so good. It feels so damn good to be on a bike. It's ex- an extremely rewarding experience in all ways. I mean, what you say about kind of interacting with the environment is crucial for me. I do most of my biking in the city, and it's definitely the best way to kind of imbibe the cityscape in particular. It's certainly true also mm-hmm, if you get out mm-hmm. in the country and you're riding down a country road. That's beautiful. But it's it's not just that that amazing experience of, you know, feeling the breeze passing over you and and having your body out in the open air, which in and of itself is wonderful. But it is this thing of really kind of get knowing the the landscape. So as you say, you can move slow enough to sort of take in the panorama of the place, but you can move fast enough that if there's a, a traffic jam, you get to weave through 
the mm-hmm. the jam mm-hmm. and and yeah. get where you're going to get where you're going a yeah. little quicker. I think it just it, it moves at, the, at just the right pace, at least for navigating a kind of dense urban environment, which is the place I find myself most of the time. You know, one of the things that occurred to me is that it may be the most perfect celebration of the wheel. You're talking about perfect objects. I had never thought of that, like a, a drinking bowl or a push pin. And, and the wheel is, is a perfect object. And really, I think there's no better celebration of the wheel. And maybe part of why we love wheels is that we love circles. There was a wonderful book called Joyful. I think you'd appreciate the subtitle, Jody. It's The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness by Ingrid Fattel Lee. We had her on the show, and she had this incredible riff on, on how we're attracted to round things. We find joy in round shapes, like all of the shapes of childhood are round. Um, So hula hoops and balloons and balls and spinning tops and carousels and merry-go-rounds, all of childhood is round. And even like children themselves are round, right? They're like (laughs) rounder versions of adults. Isn't that great? That's great. But there's something to that, right? I think it's part of the beauty of the form of the bike. She's absolutely right. And it's definitely true that, you know, like the form of the circle is really celebrated in the bicycle. And in terms of the bicycle wheel, I think it's, you know, it's, it's the, the way the spokes works on the, on the bicycle wheel really make them wonders of engineering. You know, uh, they're really like a bicycle wheel is, can, can bear, I think it's, some extraordinary number, like bear up to 900 times its own weight, simply because of the way the stresses are distributed via the, um, the, the spokes, the tangential spoking of a bicycle wheel. So there are circles, there are squares, and, 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 the, and the bicycle is this kind of uh, you know, primeval sort of perfect form that strikes, strikes a, a balance between these geometric shapes in a wonderful way. I love the idea that children are round also in, in Ingrid's <laughs> formulation. I love the idea of these right, round right. beings uh, atop yeah, exactly. these two wheels. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, that's a great segue to the history of the bicycle, which I, I knew so little about before reading your book. It turns out to be utterly fascinating. Let's start with a mystery. This blows me away. Why did it take so long for the bicycle to be invented? You know, you point out that we had the technology to build bikes hundreds of years before the bicycle was actually invented. The steam engine was actually invented before the first bicycle. And when you look at actually the timing of the advent of the safety bicycle, which is really the bicycle as we know it today with a chain and pedals, that that came out in 1885, which was the same year that Carl Benz created his first motorwagen, you know, car prototype. So why on earth did it take so long? It honestly is a great mystery. Humankind had both the parts and in some sense, the knowledge to create this thing. But it was a matter of kind of fate and fancy aligning to bring us the bicycle itself. And, the, and, and what, what really the crucial insight or the kind of, I don't know if it's an insight so much as a, um, almost like an accident, like a, like an Archimedes Eureka moment was the idea to line up one wheel in front of the other. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to, you know, putting them on either side of an axle. That form, is very much horse-like because what you're doing when you ride a bike, of course, is you're straddling the machine as you would a horse. Mm-hmm. They ca- we still call like you know we still call the bike seat or the thing on the atop the seat post the saddle of the bike. And so yep. so yes, this was this was this was the thing. It's 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 definitely there's there's no good reason why people should someone shouldn't have come up with this first. But it took one one man's eureka moment to kind of bring us the the actual bicycle or the proto bicycle. And that man was Carl von Dreis who invented the first proto-bicycle in 1817, right? The loaf of machina, is that right? Yes. And what, what did that look like? What was that first bicycle like? The lauf machina or running machine is recognized. I mean, they're, they're kind of pedantic bicycle historians who are like, it wasn't, it, that's not a bicycle because it didn't have pedals and a chain drive and it, you know, but that, that to me is pure pedantry. Of course, it's a bicycle. If you look at it, you, it's recognizably a bicycle. What it, what Carl von Dreis did is he made that crucial breakthrough in, uh, by lining up one wheel in front of the other. It was a device that, as you said earlier, lacked pedals. So it was almost exactly like those balance bikes that you you see some people call them strider bikes that little kids learn mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah. is kind of the starter bike for many little kids these days. Those little wooden things that kids kind of scoot around using a kind of like uh, ice skating motion to 
push off the pavement as they roll the mm-hmm. thing forward. And and that's that's what Carl von Dreis came up with in eighteen in eighteen seventeen. He the, the thing had had two wheels in a line. It kind of connected those two wheels with a, a sort of seating arrangement. There were handlebars. You could steer the thing after a fashion. It didn't have very good brakes, which proved to be problematic in terms of its longevity. But it was definitely the Ur bike. And it caused quite a sensation shortly after it was introduced in in various places in in Europe and and the UK and and here in the United States in the in the second decade of the of the 19th century. And it would take many more decades to figure out how to effectively deploy a pedaling system, right? And I guess it, it wasn't until so so this was in in 1817 that this original proto bike is developed, but it's not until the 1870s that we have the penny farthing which we all think of as like the famous old bike with the enormous front wheel, you know, and a little wheel behind it. And, and of course, those turn out to be really dangerous, right? You're, you're pretty high up and it's pretty easy to, 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 to hurt yourself. Yeah, those are, I mean, they're amazing looking machines, aren't they? I mean, to this day, you know, yeah. they're kind of startling and silly, both silly looking and really beautiful. Um, but as you say, they were, they were very hard to mount, I mean, part of the reason that I think that people in those days understood this to be like a, a reasonable thing to do because it was that it was at the height of a kind of stallion, you know, when you were mounting that thing, it was like mounting a horse. You had to right. really right. Get, right. get yourself way up onto that thing. But it was a direct drive machine, which is the pedals were on the front wheel itself. That's the reason you had the large front wheel because you needed a big circumference in order to get to, to move to move a decent distance at decent speed with one rotation of the pedals. It was it was only a later in the middle part of the next decade, around 1885, that we finally got the so-called safety bicycle, which was called the safety bicycle because it was safer. Indeed, it was you know you weren't likely to pitch over the handlebars and go flying headfirst and crack your what they used to call doing a header um, when you were riding a riding a penny farthing or a high wheeler. So suddenly you had a bike which was beautifully engineered and was a, was a machine that was not only safe, but was suddenly available to the masses <laughs> uh, in, at reasonable prices. And it was then, you know, 1885 and afterwards that we got the great bicycle boom of the, of the end of the 19th century. And that, that modern bike, that safety bicycle with the two equal size wheels and the diamond shaped frame and the pneumatic rubber tires, rear driven chain drive, that's the bicycle we recognize today. Every, every bicycle since has basically been just a, a variation on that design. Right. And so that brings us to the 1890s and we have bicycle mania, right? I mean, I mean, across around the world, People are going nuts for bicycles. I, I really was not aware of this history. Can you describe what, what bicycle mania looked like in the 1890s? So I, I think a helpful way to think about this is as a, um, uh, the, the bicycle produced nothing short of moral panic, uh, like a moral panic akin to those that have accompanied such things as, you know, the advent of jazz or, or rock and roll or, or hip hop mm-hmm. or something right. like that. Interesting. Yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I, I like to talk about it in terms of if, if the bicycle in its various iterations prior to the 1890s, what it was kind of a, it was kind of a fad like a hula hoop or a pet rock or something. Whereas, <laughs> you know, when, when, when the, bi- the bicycle hit the 1890s, kind of like the internet has hit our era, yeah. just, it was a completely transformative technology. And uh, you suddenly, as I said, had this this thing that was uh, efficient and safe and uh, a means of personal mobility available to millions, not just to the wealthy. Because of course, prior to the 1890s, uh, if you wanted to move around fast over land, you had to have money in order to like have your own horse or your own horse and carriage or hire a hackney cab if you're in a city to get around. Most people moved around on foot. Well, suddenly you had more or less everybody had the, a bicycle available to them. And this ran across class lines and it ran across gender lines. So suddenly women who's, um, you know, middle-class Anglo-American women, let's say, whose personal mobility was very circumscribed prior to this, suddenly had a, a, a means of personal mobility and, which could get them wherever they wanted to go unchaperoned and unsurveilled. And this was perceived as a great threat to the social order. So you had, in terms of the moral panic, you had, you had people decrying the bike as 
a threat to the to the nuclear family, causing divorces right and left. It was turning children out into the streets. It was thought to be a cause of white slavery. That is, women were being <laughs> were being led. Uh, to moral ruins through the bicycle, you know, it was a short step from riding a bicycle to literally becoming a prostitute. This was this was one of the things that was posited during this time. You had you know moralists of all kinds decrying the bikes on just every possible grounds, including just ruining every other possible business. So it was thought that you know people weren't going to smoke cigars anymore, or go to bars anymore, or go to libraries anymore, or attend church because they were too busy riding bicycles. So so yes, bicycle mania was met with a moral backlash of a, a incredible dimension. It's just astonishing. And you have this chapter, the bicycle mania chapter, which consists of nothing but excerpts from newspaper uh, articles, because it's almost like unbelievable, right? So you have, we went from 60,000 bicycles sold in 1891 in the US to over 800,000 sold five years later. So it's just incredible, you know, uh, you know, dramatic explosion of bicycles. I'm going to read from a few of the, uh, of the newspaper articles that you quote. In 1895, there's an article in the medical world out of Philadelphia. Have we not sexual troubles enough on our hand without opening Pandora's box and hauling out a bike? It is a dreadful thing to think that the first thing that should render a young and pure girl conscious of her sexual formation would be her first ride on a bicycle. God save our girls. Keep them virtuous. And then, as you say, you have multiple, lots of articles about divorces triggered by bicycle mania. Chris Heller has filed a petition in Common Pleas Court asking for a divorce from Lena Heller. He alleges gross neglect. To substantiate this, he says she's refused and neglected to keep house or prepare meals. He says his wife is a victim of the bicycle craze and that she spent nearly all of her time riding her wheel in company with people who were strangers to propriety. Incredible. <laughs> so, I mean, it's the, it's this countercultural upheaval, right? I mean, it's it's kind of extraordinary. The, the funny thing is that it, it was so it was such an intense period of bicycle mania, but it was so relatively short lived. I mean, it was it was it hit the U.S., the U.K., and Western Europe especially hard. In Europe and and the U.K., you know, it, it kind of persisted, or that is, bicycles became really integrated into everyday life in a way that lasted mm -hmm. for some decades. But here in the yep. U.S., you very quickly had the rise of the automobile. You know, you get the Ford's Model A. Um, shortly after the turn of the century, and then bicycles are very quickly marginalized. So this period is really a short-lived but intense period of, of bicycle hysteria. To some extent, historians or bike advocates look back to this period with such nostalgia now because it, we haven't quite gotten back there exactly in the same way ever since. I mean, just to take an example of the kind of infrastructure that sprung up here as a result of this, you know, here in New York, we had the so-called Coney Island bike path, which ran from Prospect Park all the way to, to Coney mm -hmm. Island, which was a kind of like a, a like a grand boulevard not unlike the Grand Boulevard in Paris. It like ran for mm. miles and miles, beautiful tree-lined boulevard, which constructed especially for bicycle traffic. You know, that later became, I think, Coney Island Avenue. <laughs> it was it was claimed by automobiles. So yeah, it was a it was it, it's an extraordinary period and one that's um that's that's fondly recalled now, but at the time was was, you know, a, a really a, a period of culture war. And there was a huge movement to build more roads. I mean, I mean, there was a perception that, hey, this is a the people's nag, the people's horse. This is democratizing transportation. It's liberating women. This is an opportunity to build a better world. And and there was a big movement to build new, a new road system for bikes, right? But but then you go on to say that bicycle advocates ended up literally paving the way for the rise of the automobile, right? Because some of those efforts to build new road systems ended up being kind of usurped by the rise of the car what in in the early you know first decade or two of the 20th century yeah absolutely i mean if uh, there there's there's something which is now forgotten but a super important political crusade of the 1890s known as the good roads movement um and this was so powerful at the time that the the in, in the presidential election of 1896 that the the two candidates competed to to kind of win the endorsement of the so-called bicycle block because cycling activists and advocates were considered such an important voting block so yeah and and, and those advocates for so-called for the so-called good roads what they're really trying to do is get smoothly paved roadways constructed across the United States particularly 
in the countryside because, um, you know, roads in the cities were, you know, it, it ranged from good to pretty bad. But in rural America, it was really like, you know, rutted paths and lots of mud. And it was, it was kind of impossible terrain for anyone to navigate on, mm-hmm, on sure. two wheels or four wheels. And so it was a, actually a very successful effort. But as, shortly after the turn of the 20th century, again, we have the, the rise of the automotive age. And so the work, the, the successful work of these bicycle activists in the 1890s to compel this, this system of, you know, roadways being constructed across the country, connecting the cities to the countryside, um, that leads directly to the, the construction of the interstate highway system and all these aspects of, of American culture that we associate with automobiles, with car culture, the interstate highway system, but also, you know, suburban sprawl, strip malls, et cetera. We think of those as, you know, the car did that to the United States, but if you trace it back to its roots, this is, this is the, this began with the work of bicycle advocates. So the, the relationship between automobiles and cars is actually much closer than most people know, certainly much closer than many bicycle activists recognize today. Wow. Yeah. You know, th- this makes me think of a, of a kind of thought experiment, which is what would have happened if the bicycle had been invented a century or two earlier, right? I mean, it's an interesting kind of alternative possible history because you think, mm. I mean, it's remarkable when you look back at like da Vinci's drawings, right? He had all these extraordinary drawings of of helicopters and machine guns and you know, intricate gearing systems, <laughs> and like it's all, mm-hmm. you kind of, you know, you look through them and you think the bicycle is just right there next to you, right? It, we we had the first, you know, clocks, incredibly sophisticated clock gearing systems, right? Built in the 14th century, <laughs> right? So, mm-hmm. so, I mean, one can imagine an alternative history where you had, you had really high, uh, effective uh, bicycles coming out of a century earlier, certainly. Potentially, I mean, we see how, the rise of the Model T and automobiles completely changed the landscape of America and how we live and how we, you know, where we build our homes and how we interact in public space. I mean, just as this bicycle revolution was emerging in the 1890s, it was just only moments before the Model T would just would just completely run over the bicycle effectively as a uh, as a as a way of moving humans around. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. You you say, you know, it's an interesting thought experiment, but it's actually it's such a strain in bicycle history and 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 historiography because people have imagined that alternative history quite a bit. But it's funny, it's funny you pointed Da Vinci because there was a famous hoax that was yes, that was yes. propagated in the early 1970s where there was the supposed discovery in Leonardo's notebooks of a sketch of a very suspiciously modern-looking bicycle right, um, right. in in his in his notebooks, and of course, this was Da Vinci. For all his genius, did not come up with the bicycle in the Renaissance, but actually, it seems like a, a, a mischievous monk who had access to these papers sketched it in there sometime in the 1960s. It was discovered in the 70s, and and no less a, a, a source than the New York Times not only reported this news, wow, but the Times also in that same article said, you know, it's well known that there are, there are bas-reliefs that date back to ancient Egypt and ancient Rome depicting bicycles, which of course is nonsense. There are no such thing. But there again, we have the paper of record <laughs> itself saying, saying, you know, yeah. we had ancient bikes because I think people just couldn't, can't wrap their head around the fact that this thing came so, so late. But just, just to, just to hold on this for one last second, which is, yeah, I mean, I, it's something I've never, never thought about. I wonder what would have happened had we had a mm. bicycle, you know, a, a, a 17th century bicycle. Yeah. And, and how things would have, you know, if the bicycle would have had like a different fate, if it had been with us longer before we, you know, had the technology to build something like a, a, a steam engine or a, certainly an automobile. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Thomas Coyne 
LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back to the show. Here in the US, we tend to think of the bike as an object of leisure or maybe of exercise. But that's not the case everywhere. In much of the world, Jody says, bikes are beasts of burden. In Asia, Africa, and Latin America, millions of bicycles transport billions of pounds of goods and materials. Yeah, no, this is a really, I, I think, a crucial point because in the West, certainly um, in the kind of um, nice neighborhood that I live in in Brooklyn, um, we think about the bicycle as a kind of lifestyle choice, right? And it can be, as you say, a kind of leisure device. It can be something you exercise on, maybe a utilitarian vehicle to commute here and there. But in, in much of the world, it, the, the bicycle is defined by labor and livelihood. There are literally millions, tens of millions of people who make their living pedaling around stuff. Uh, these are often on three-wheeled pedal-driven devices, kind of tricycles, cargo mm -hmm, tricycles. Mm -hmm. You find these all over the developing world in the global South, Asia, Africa, Latin America. You, you, you mentioned those, those figures. I mean, here's one that really blew my mind. There's a recent study of cargo cycling in China, which concluded that there are between 40 and 60 million working cargo tricycles in China alone. So that number is exceeds by many times the total number of cargo vehicles everywhere else in the world Combine, that is to say, if you add up all the cargo ships, cargo trains, trucks, planes, that number doesn't even come close to the 40 to 60 million cargo tricycles that are schlepping around raw materials, you know, goods of various kinds just in China. To say nothing of the various other kinds of, uh, you know, the various other cargo vehicles that exist in many other places in the world, including the kind of human cargo vehicle, as it were, which were, which is this, um, these pedal-driven rickshaws that are kind of the taxi cabs in, in many of the mega cities of the global South. This, by the way, one of, one of the things I love about your book, Jody, is that you don't just sit on your couch and read about bikes online and write this book. You went out into the world to understand how people interact with bikes all over the globe. Maybe my favorite chapters on uh, uh, of reportage was uh, your trip to Dhaka in Bangladesh. Can can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, this this truly blew my mind. I, I uh, this this might have been my favorite part of certainly of the reporting for this book. So Dhaka is the fastest growing and most densely settled megacity in the world. There are roughly twenty four million people living there now. That's projected to grow by many times in, <laughs> I mean, you know, go very quickly in the coming years. So we think that maybe within a decade, there may be something like 30 million people living in Dhaka um, in an extremely packed in circumstances. There, there are not, there's not enough good housing in Dhaka to say the least. There's tons of desperately poor people there and there are not enough roads there, certainly not enough good tractable roads. And uh, it's got one of the worst traffic problems, possibly the worst traffic problem in the world. It, it Habitually, Dhaka gets the the worst infrastructure ratings in its kind of poll that The Economist does of the world's cities every year. So you have all these people packed into a very small space trying to move through these incredibly jammed up streets. And really the only way that anyone gets around in Dhaka, that anything happens at all, is because of these pedal-driven rickshaws, these three-wheeled kind of taxi cabs. You know, you see pedicabs like this in places like New York. They're 
kind of novelty vehicles for tourists. You, maybe you can, you're in Times Square and you want to catch one down to Union Square, right? And someone will come along and you can, you can hire one of those things. Well, there, they're very much are equivalent to the way, you know, Ubers are here or yellow cabs used to be here. They absolutely run, run the city. There's some, there's probably over a million of them there. The, the guys whose job it is to pedal these things around are known as rickshaw pullers or, or rickshaw wallas. So I went over there to kind of find out more about how that, that system of transit works, but also to, to, to learn about the lives of these rickshaw wallas. And I, and I spent a lot of time with, with a rickshaw puller, a guy named Muhammad Abul Badshah, um, who's older than most of them in his fifties, around my age, um, and, and, and learned about his life and what it's like to, to navigate this amazing, but really, in traffic terms and other terms, seething city, one of these fabulous, not very well engineered, but very beautiful looking machines. And did, did you ever ride his bike? Did, did, you, uh, did you ask him if you could give it a ride? I, I didn't. And, you know, I do regret this. Um, these things are, these things are, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> I really should have. Uh, they're amazing looking. They're very elaborately ornamented and decorated, very yeah, beautifully decorated, yeah. uh, but they're extremely poorly engineered. So they have a kind of chain drive that loops under the, the, the chassis of the thing. And they're very heavy, very hard to propel. And of course, these, these rickshaw wallers are often facing not just, you know, I don't know what kind of language you can use on this podcast, but you know, really sh- shitty streets, just terribly sure, street, sure. streets that are in terrible repair. But also, you know, during the monsoon season, they essentially have to ford rivers in these things. Uh, so that they're 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 poorly engineered in the first place, and they and they face these terribly adverse conditions. But I would have liked to have tried riding one of these things. Strangely enough, I ran into one here in Brooklyn on. The Brooklyn waterfront, like right near Pier Five in Brooklyn, oh, wow. just a, just a few weeks ago, I was biking along, leaving soccer practice with one of my kids, my younger son, and it, this thing appeared to me like a you know like an apparition in the disc. I thought I was hallucinating, so I like rode over there as fast as I could, and I and I said, "Please stop, please stop." Is that is that a rickshaw from Dhaka? And the guy was blown away that I knew that, but yeah, there's this guy who had one of them built and brought over here. And he was kind of pedaling around. He's the guy I should have said, hey, wait, get off that thing. Let me pedal that thing around for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, on the subject of, uh, of the perils of navigating dock at a rickshaw, you know, navigating the streets of New York on a bicycle can also be perilous. Talking father to father, New Yorker to New Yorker, how do you think of the, uh, of the kind of uh, the risk assessment? I think you said you've learned to cultivate a, quote, breezy fatalism. Yeah, I mean, these things don't feel like cho- real choices to me because, as I was saying earlier, when I when I'm not on my bike, it just feels so bad to me that the cost benefit dilemma is really it's it, it's sort of like for me I've arrived at the answer in advance, which is I'm going to take the risk because it's despite everything so pleasurable a way to get around, even though it has their very, very hairy moments on a daily basis in New York. But also it's uh it's just every every other mode of transportation feels punished like a punishment to me, whether I'm in a, a taxi or the subway or anything else. So I and and you know walking is great, okay, but again, it's it, it ain't it ain't like riding your bike. That said, it's stressful, you know? And and I don't know if you've experienced this. Like I too was riding my bike in the 80s and 90s in in New York and um and you know, back when there was far less bike infrastructure even than the, than the relatively speaking measly bike infrastructure we have now. But it feels more dangerous now than it did then somehow. And I can I I don't know if that's because I'm more fearful because I'm older and I have, you know, children and uh, maybe I fear death more or I feel less invincible as one does as one ages. Or yeah. if it's because there are simply more cars on the road and it's and it's an even more kind of um, competitive is not even the word. It's, you know, it's a, it's a more menacing environment. It's more dangerous, more dangerous. You know, I, 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 was, I was fascinated by your line in the book, you say, danger is a sensory intensifier, supercharging the scenery, making everything appear volatile and alive. It is a little bit of the experience of, <laughs> of the adrenaline, right? <laughs> of, I mean, you have, to be, you, you have to be aware, you have to be alert. But obviously, 
all bicycle enthusiasts like ourselves are trying to create a world in which it's not, it's not frightening. But how do we create that less frightening future? Jody shares his vision right after the break. A few years ago, Tony Fidel, one of the creators of the iPhone, said, I wake up in cold sweats every so often thinking, what did we bring into this world? Since then, he's also shared an interesting analogy. He said, the iPhone is like a refrigerator. If you're eating the wrong food, don't blame the fridge. Blame the person who puts food in the fridge. That's you. So the question is, what do you have on your iPhone? Is it healthy food or unhealthy food? As it happens, we at the Next Big Idea Club have spent the last year building an app that delivers healthy food for your brain. It's called the Next Big Idea app, and we love it. We use it every day. It's a labor of love. We select the most important new books and invite the authors, these are legendary, world-famous authors, to distill their books down to 12 minutes of audio and four minutes of text. We call these book bites, superfood for your brain. We publish a new one every day. A lot of media today is like processed food, regurgitated third hand. The Next Big Idea app delivers the most important new ideas unadulterated from the world's leading thinkers, superfood. Our book bites are appetizers, a great way to sample new ideas when you're ready for an entree. The Next Big Idea app also features beautiful video e-courses created from the best eight books every year, selected by our four legendary curators, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, and Daniel Pink. And for dessert, how about an ad-free version of this podcast? Pause this episode, click on the App Store, and search for Next Big Idea. Seriously, I don't mind waiting. See? How easy was that? If you enjoyed this podcast, you will love the app. There's no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. Remember the segue, the self-balancing people mover? It was heralded as a revolution in human mobility. John Doerr, the legendary venture capitalist, predicted it would achieve a billion dollars in revenue faster than any product in history. Steve Jobs said it would be bigger than the personal computer, but they were too heavy to lift. Classic case of over-engineering. A bicycle, perhaps with a little electric assist, was hiding in plain sight as the solution. So I asked Jody, could e-bikes be the future? I resisted even taking a trip on an e-bike until I was in... Austin, not all that long ago. And there they have a very modest, <laughs> to put it nicely, bike share system. And I grabbed an e-bike one day and, you know, pedal assist and 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 gave it a spin. And wow, it blew my mind. I, I definitely think that that e-bikes are the future, along with regular old bikes and scooters and every other possible mode of alternative trans and everything that's not a four-wheel car or truck motor vehicle game on but i definitely think that in in, in terms of the bicycle like what the the e-bike represents the most potentially transformative like the biggest development in the kind of lineage of the bicycle since the advent of the safety in 1885 we're looking at something that i i feel like you know before too long you know matter of decades there will be more e-bikes than there are regular old bikes and 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 that's probably a good thing in terms of like you know kind of the future of cities for sure Let's talk specifically about New York City, right? It's where you and I both live in New York. We've been biking in New York for decades, and I'm sure we both have an investment in imagining what, what it might look like. I actually, I, I've been a bit lucky to be on the west side of lower Manhattan, and that bike path has been transformative for me. So mm. I basically go up and down the west side highway bike path, and I've learned to... Uh, hue to the bike paths. I love this elegant solution of actually parking, having cars parked between the bike lanes yes. and the moving traffic. Like that's a classic elegant solution to a problem. So I'm actually finding my bicycle movements around New York to be more convenient and probably a little bit safer because I've been able to stay largely on those paths. But when you look at the data, right, I think there now, there's been a huge increase in, in bicycle usage in New York, over a half million bike trips per day, I believe now in New York. I think mm -hmm. the average city bike is used to something like seven times a day, last time I checked. And I think almost overnight when the Hudson River bike system was introduced uh, along the West Side Highway and now a, a lot of the East Side as well, 
it became the most trafficked bike path in the country. So there's progress, but there's still a long way to go. What do you see as the future? I mean, it, there's potential here for a for Copenhagen on a larger scale. We we have 10x the population of Copenhagen. It's a flat city. It's dense. It's you know we should be able to bike everywhere, right, with the right infrastructure. One hundred percent. It's really a matter of political will. I mean, I think ideally, if we want a, a, a Copenhagen-like environment, you have very little parking in the city altogether, and that's that's yeah. what's going to take political will. The smart people that I've, whose work I've looked at, say the way to make cities healthier, saner, more habitable places is to have a lot more bikes and other alternative transportations and a lot, a lot fewer cars full stop. And how do you do that? You make it incredibly inconvenient to have a passenger car in the city. If you get rid of parking altogether in these places, suddenly the situation becomes a lot better. That's what they've, that's what they've done in lots of places in Northern Europe, in Oslo, for instance. They simply got rid of parking spaces. They started building greenways in central Oslo. You didn't have to say cars are banned, which is it's going to be a very politically uh, controversial, to say the least, <laughs> proposal to get passed. You start just doing things piecemeal and hopefully systematically. I mean, another example we can look towards is, is what's going on in Paris now under Mayor Anne Hidalgo, who is, yes, to say I, the least, a, a controversial figure, but she is a zealous cycling advocate. Yeah. And, and she took the opportunity of the pandemic. And this has happened in cities mm-hmm. around the world yeah, where a lot, yeah. of, a lot of infrastructure f- kind of flew up on the fly, uh, uh, materialized on the fly because people needed a safe, a socially distanced way to commute. And suddenly, you know, there was this huge pandemic era bike boom. Well, this kind of smart policymakers and municipal leaders around the world threw up temporary bike lanes and then made them permanent. And that Anne Hidalgo has, you know, is basically say, saying we are banning car, you know, through traffic by motor vehicles in a lot of the central arrondissement in Paris, which is, which is like, yes, it's controversial, but people over there are discovering, wow, it's pretty nice here with, a, you know, many fewer cars and, and a lot more bikes. Now, of course, there are tons of issues that arise around this, including issues of class and race and related mm-hmm. issues. So sure. what yeah. bicycle advocates need to do is do a lot better job around those issues because we don't want to make these cities that are like, you know, just cities for rich people with bikes. And it, they don't have to be that way, but there needs to be, uh, on the contrary, I think it's actually, and I'm sorry to ramble on here, but for instance, studies show that like the biggest victims of unsafe streets by far are, for instance, in New, in New York and, and cities in the United States are people of color. Yep, a city yep. that's, that's, that's less hospitable to cars and more hospitable to bicycles is a safer city for people of color and low-income people in particular because those people, the neighborhoods they live in are the ones that ha- that have traditionally have the crappiest and least safe streets. But it, this needs to be something that is really that, that is really taken on in an intelligent way and and actively taken on as opposed to kind of ha- quasi, <laughs> quasi taken on in the way that we have, for instance, here in New York. The democratization of, of human movement, which the bicycle offered in the 1890s, right, this vision that 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 everyone, irrespective of background, irrespective of income, of, of ethnicity, of gender, could get around in in a, in a more efficient and beautiful way. That that's still something that we're that we're fighting for. Um, I reached out to Danny Harris. He's the executive director of Transportation Alternatives, which you know well. It's a nonprofit that's done great work advocating for a safer environment for pedestrians and cyclists. I asked him what his dream was for New York, the future of New York for pedestrians and cyclists. Here's what he said. When I and so many others imagine the future of New York City, it's one where streets and the city are built for people. And what does that mean practically? It means that our city prioritizes from a construction to a data to a funding perspective, human lives over inanimate objects like cars. So on your block, that means that instead of having parking everywhere in traffic, it means that you'd have protected bike lanes, protected bus lanes. It means putting bike lanes on every bridge. It means building out a protected bike network that touches every corner of the city and with bicycle superhighways that help to connect to the suburbs. This future is one where transportation becomes like a utility, 
one where you almost forget about it, like water or electricity, in a world where this just works, then our city can become a more seamless place. It can become a more equitable place, a more vibrant place. And I hope that that's a vision you can get behind. So we hear there some of the same emphasis that, that you'd been putting, Jody, on, on, on basically fewer cars. I, th- I think we saw this, as you say, during COVID, this exchange of the space of two or three parked cars for 25 people in a restaurant clinking rosé glasses. I think most New Yorkers concluded that's a really good exchange, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and people also have discovered like the bicycle is a great way to get around. So it, 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 does, it does feel like a moment where there's you know, real potential to continue to build on you know, progress of recent years. I'm transfixed by some of these. I, I, I saw a proposal to build a series of, of narrow suspension bridges just for pedestrians and bicycles. Uh, mm. They would arc from lower Manhattan to Governor's Island and on to Brooklyn and connect New Jersey. And it's just sort of, to me, that looks like biketopia. Yeah, no, I've seen some of those plans too. You know, we go over to Governor's Island on the ferry from from Red Hook generally. And every time we make that crossing, we're like, you know, we've heard about these plans. We actually know someone who's who's made one of the proposals. And it does seem like dreamy. I mean, the idea that you could, you know, bike across these waterways, I, you know, I, the, the idea of like sort of doing the islands of New York Harbor by bike, as opposed to, you know, on a rowboat. Mm, amazing. <laughs> is, yeah. is, very, is very seductive. Right. I, I, yeah, I want to go back to what Danny Harris said just for one minute, because I, I, I just want to make one other, one yes. other point, which is that, um, and this connects to actually my, my time in Dhaka, which is just when you think about the way, the, the extent to which our economy today here in New York and our, our, our way of life depends on bicycles in the first place. During the pandemic, there was this, this labor movement among the so-called deliveristas. That is yes. the guys who work for these delivery apps, mm-hmm. which is how yeah. these, these were the, the, the workers who were really keeping the city going in the, in the darkest weeks and months of the pandemic. Millions of New Yorkers were quarantining and ordering in food. And the restaurant industry, which is such a backbone of our economy, was like threatened with extinction. If it were not for this, this core of bicycle deliverists, nearly all of whom are immigrants from Latin America, undocumented immigrants from, you know, places like Guatemala and Mexico and Ecuador. And they are really totally akin to the rickshaw pullers, the rickshaw wallets who I met in Dhaka, who I went over there to, to study their labor conditions and you know their kind of cycling culture. And it was only really going over there to South Asia that opened my eyes to what was going on right under my nose here in New York, where we have you know, these, this underclass of working cyclists right here in this town. So when Danny speaks about like cycling equity, it's not just about more pleasant, safer commutes for all of us, you know, across lines of class and race and stuff like that. But it really is like better conditions for those people whose kind of hidden or unacknowledged labor is there are people who are out here risking their lives all the time to literally keep people fed. You know what I mean? So there are some people who oppose, you know, these these initiatives and say, you know, we don't want bicycles in New York or whatever, you know, we need more. It's like yeah, yeah. they're already here. You're probably eating pad thai that Right now, that was that <laughs> was delivered to you, or a pizza yeah, that was delivered yeah. to you by someone riding a bike. So you, you know it, it, this is this is imperative for all sorts of reasons. But I, I definitely resonate with that very beautiful vision of that Danny Harris has of the of uh, you know all the, these these safe bikeways and and one hundred percent with the idea of suspension bridges jumping over the East River. I mean, we have suspension bridges that jump over the East River, but ones that are purely for pedestrians and bicycles. Wow! I hope I, I hope I live so long. <laughs> exactly. Let's make it happen. Last question for you. Can you describe to me your your current bike? Yeah, it's a it's a bicycle the, the brand is Priority, which is a New York City-based bicycle company. It's it's a, just a regular old-fashioned looking cruiser bicycle. You know, it looks like a, you know, a little bit like one of those like kind of utility bikes that people would ride around in 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 Holland or, you know, that people tooled around on in in England in the 1930s. So it's got a very a very classic look, you know, without a lot of a lot of a lot a lot of extras in it. What about you? What do you ride around, Rufus? 
My favorite bike is a is is a bike uh, made by Public in San Francisco that's technicolored with two different color wheels, and her name is Sally Sally Forth, I call her. But I have to admit, I have I have on order a Von Moof. I have the next generation of Von oh, yes. Moof on order, which is sort of like really future of bikes. If people want to give that a Google, well. Jody, thank you for taking time out of your cycling and writing and soccer camp drop-off uh, to be with <laughs> us here today. So, so great talking with you. Thanks a million, Rufus. I had a, had a great time. That was Jody Rosen, author of Two Wheels Good. You can buy a copy wherever books are sold. If you like today's episode, there are quite a few others I think you'll enjoy. Check out our curator Adam Grant's conversation with Ingrid Fatale-Lee, who you heard from in this episode about her book, Joyful. You might also enjoy my conversation with avid cyclist Tom Vanderbilt about his book, Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. And if you're looking for inspiration on how we can build a better world, you might want to listen to our episode with Yancey Strickler about his book, This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. You can listen to them now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Next Big Idea app, or wherever you get your pods. You'll find links in the show notes. You will also find links to Transportation Alternatives, the nonprofit I mentioned, and a plan to build suspension bridge ribbons just wide enough for bikes and pedestrians linking Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, and New Jersey. I find this wildly inspiring. If you need a little more Next Big Idea in your life, follow me, Rufus Griscom, on LinkedIn, and subscribe to my newsletter where I invite listeners like you to join me in conversation about each week's episode. Our show today was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Sound design by Mike Toda. The team at LinkedIn is our pedal assist. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.